and welcome to the Pack Heavy podcast. Now this podcast is for anyone who works in the hospitality and food manufacturing industries who use flexible packaging to get their products to market. Featuring interviews with guests who have traveled the path that you're on so that you can learn from their successes and failures and engage in the mindset required to go all in on your vision. I call this mindset the Pack Heavy mentality and it's primarily driven by deliberate action and extreme organization. You gather market intelligence, put a strong plan in place, organize the appropriate resources, and then confidently test your hypothesis against reality. So if you're ready to pack heavy on your vision, you're in the right place, and I'm excited to have you here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 34, where today I'm proudly joined by Jessica Malak, who is the VP of Partnerships and Insights at Social Nature. Uh, Before we do get started with the show, though, I did want to briefly touch on Foodpack, which is the company that I proudly work for in Vancouver, BC. Now, at Foodpack, there are some things that we definitely specialize in and do extremely well, uh, one of which is flexible packaging, and the other is the packaging equipment to support that flexible packaging. So if you've got a small to medium-sized business or even a large-sized business and you're looking to package up your food product in a flexible pouch or a lay-flat pouch, you need to get in touch with me and have a chat. Um, There's so much that I can do for you, whether it is offering our warehousing program to you to free up some working capital so that you can keep on pushing your business in other areas uh, or whether it is actually moving into a flexible pouch and into a stand-up pouch for the first time that's you know fully customized and printed um, flexible packaging is such a great opportunity to get your product out onto the retail shelf and we've said it quite a few times but you know the first interaction with that a lot of your consumers will have with your brand is on the retail shelf. So it's something that you want to get right. So I like to spend a good 45 minutes having a chat with my clients about what it is exactly that they're looking for, the type of pouch that they're looking to get their product in, how they want the consumer to interact with it, and uh, and you know ensuring that all of the basic fundamentals of functionality are built into the package as well. When it comes to packaging equipment, there's a lot to the conversation as well. And, um, you know, we're fortunate at Food Packing that we've got a showroom floor packed full of equipment that we can offer to you. You're more than welcome to come on into the showroom with your food-based products and, uh, and actually try some of the equipment that we've got on the showroom floor. It's a really great way to, you know, think the production side of your business through and uh, ensure that the piece of equipment that you're about to invest in is actually functional within your business and it's going to actually achieve the output numbers that you're looking to um, to get out into the world. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about how I can help you over here, so whether we're talking about a thermoformer or a tray sealer or a vacuum chamber machine or a band sealer, you need to get in touch with me and have a chat. Uh, please reach out at Hayden at thepackofyourpodcast.com. You could DM me on LinkedIn, or you can also get in touch with me by giving me a call on my work cell, which is 604-360-6790. Okay, let's get on with the show. So Jessica Malak has over 15 years of experience in a host of senior roles in the natural CPG sector in both the USA and Canada. She speaks regularly at industry events and is a contributor on consumer and plant-based trends with the Canadian Health Food Association, Canadian Securities Exchange, plant based association and the whole foods magazine to name just a few jessica is currently the vp of partnerships and insights at social nature which is actually an online discovery platform which helps better for you brands get on and off the retail shelves and validate their products across the life cycle with real-time consumer data jessica most recently completed a graduate certificate program in mindfulness-based teaching and training at the university of fraser valley and is delivering workshops at national consumer events and workplaces on ways to cultivate mindfulness self-care and resilience to reduce stress and improve well-being performance 
I really enjoyed my conversation with Jessica today. Uh, We covered a lot of ground, and I know of which is definitely going to be of interest to you. So please sit back, enjoy the show, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Cheers. Jessica, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Hayden. Nice to be here and connect. Yeah, I know. We've been, um, you and I have been doing a bit of back and forth via email, so it's actually really (laughs) nice to finally sit down and, and have a good chat. Definitely, yes. And thanks for taking the time to reach out to me on LinkedIn and uh, and suggesting a conversation as well. Um, I was really excited when I jumped online and saw your profile and saw that you had all of this experience, which is just so perfectly suited to, you know, the audience that listened to this podcast. So there is so much that we can have a conversation about today. But, you know, before we do kick off into all of that, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in Vancouver, BC, which is home to the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam First Nations, mm-hmm. and I live here presently now. Right, right, right. So same part of Vancouver, or you've shifted around over the years? Uh, same part of Vancouver, primarily a little bit of hops, uh, cross bridges, and things like that, and yep. mostly here, although I have had a couple stints um living in the, the Caribbean, actually, in the oh, Cayman wow. Islands, and mm-hmm. I also was fortunate uh, a few years ago to have a U.S. relocation assignment to Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah, that. So that was pretty fun. Um, <laughs> and that mostly, but mostly around this area. Yeah. Cool. And how did you find Vancouver to grow up in? I think it's changed a lot over the years, really. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was and still is somewhat of a small town, but there's certainly been like an increase in real estate development yeah. uh, in Vancouver. And that's really having an impact on housing affordability and things like that. And I think um, that is a challenge for a lot of people that live in the city. Mm. And what is good about living here, however, (laughs) is that there is still an investment around environmental stewardship and ensuring that we are doing what we can um, to honor the the nature around us. And there's a lot more work to be done there, but we are blessed, especially uh, having been in a lockdown last year, to be surrounded by natural beauty, the mountains, the lakes, the forests, and things like that. And I think a lot of people in the city are much more grateful perhaps uh, now than they might've been even a year and a half ago, pre-pandemic. hundred percent. Like we're so lucky here. (laughs) I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, but when I was laid off and I was spending time with my kids and my wife, we were just spending all of our time outside and, you know, in the playgrounds here in Richmond, where we are, there's just an incredible amount of natural, um, you know, walks and nature parks and it's just awesome. And then you got the backdrop of backdrop of the mountains. So yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And and we took full advantage of it. And I know that a lot of our friends did too. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Um, listen, where do you want to start? We could talk about consumer trends in CPG. We could talk about shopper marketing and sort of the work that you do at social nature and the digital demos and playbooks that you've got, or we could kick off with, you know, sort of workplace wellness. Where would you like to start? Well, there's so much to talk about. Why don't we talk a little bit about sort of the shopper marketing trends and what's happening with consumers. And then we can discuss kind of how that translates into social nature's playbook. And then I will speak a little bit to you, the mindfulness piece, because really what we're talking about in CPG space and specifically natural CPG Mm. 
is really a mindfulness approach to how we run our companies. And I think that that requires a specific training in leadership development. So as we want to build more mindful products, more mindful supply chain relationships, et cetera, how are we actually showing up at the workplace? And how are we actually developing that skill within every single person that works with us so that these wonderful missions that many of these natural companies have could be fully embodied. And so I think that might be a nice closing piece uh, to talk about and how that kind of comes full circle towards the shopper marketing and consumer trends that I know you wanted me to kind of cover today that yeah. Uh, yeah. many of us have been noticing changes. So maybe we could start with uh, how people are are starting to to change yeah. just the way they tested buy products. Yeah, no, that sounds good. All right. So, I mean, there's no secret. And I mean, we have definitely noticed it here at Food Pack and as well as being a consumer myself, just like all of us, I've definitely changed my shopping patterns as well. So we've noticed that, you know, a lot of people are going online. They're doing a lot more research online and not only purchasing online as well, whether it's through an Amazon or a local, um, a local online vendor, say like a, a local B, uh, BC local route um, that Andrea Greg Grant's got up and running. You know, we've definitely noticed, you know, a few of these platforms pop up. Um, what have you noticed in terms of the trends out there for shoppers? Yeah, definitely. I think the whole piece about digital discovery and like digital first uh, retail marketing is what's happening. And the reason for that is that uh, people are, wanting to learn about things ahead of time. And also retailers have gotten better at the O2O e-commerce model. So the online to offline model, right? right. So the people that are winning right now um, are providing consumers with the information that they want and they're making it easy for people to get that information. And so examples of that, especially with food products are making sure that the food inventory is tagged properly mm. with attributes that people care about. So like if I'm looking for like low sugar snack bars as an example, I don't wanna have to click through a hundred bars and read every label. I don't have time or interest to do that. If I can go to a site that can help me quickly find what I want, I'm much more likely to keep coming back to that site. And then when you have that attribution, as a retailer or as an online e-commerce provider, you're also learning more because you've got better data in the first place. Yep. And so that supports that personalized marketing, right? And increasing basket size and retention. And so really it's all starting with this joint kind of digital first mentality that's happening. So I think that is one shift. Um, and people are still going to brick and mortar stores. Brick and mm -hmm. mortar is not over. It's still the largest sales volume driver of all units sold mm -hmm. and it's a it's really about like how people are learning about things and then how they're they're choosing to to spend their dollars and it is a little bit of an anywhere anytime kind of model okay what's happening yeah so mm -hmm. i mean we've definitely seen it i've also introduced um oh sorry interviewed um uh, switch grocery as well and you know their whole premise of the online store is that it's really targeting sort of like your keto paleo natural yeah. foods audience out there so i mean there are mm -hmm. these online retailers that are popping up everywhere which really does make it easy for everybody totally. out there especially if they've got a specific dietary requirement that they're hunting down um now i guess at um i guess where you are in the world at social nature you know it's a great way to, for the consumers to get out there and see new items which is exactly what you're talking about like I want to sort of get a really good understanding of how it is that not only the consumers interact with social nature, but how a business would interact with social nature to try and either launch a product out in the world and sort of leverage that online model or sort of gather some data so that they can get a little bit more understanding on who their customers are and how they like to buy. 
Yeah, so basically, just to kind of start from, it's a great question. Um, so Social Nature is a discovery and trial platform for yeah. consumers to learn about new products, uh, specifically in areas where they want to make that switch to better for you products. So the mission of Social Nature as a company is to help people make that switch to better for you products. So we exclusively work with, with better for you brands in the space. And our intention is to personalize that experience based on what that consumer wants to, to enhance, if you will, or what kind of health problem or goal they might have. And so the way it works for brands to launch their products on the platform is it all starts with the digital first piece, right? So Social Nature is an online platform and we have over 600,000 uh, consumers that are part of the community. And so we'll generate digital demand first and discovery and then we can mobilize that demand across online and offline retail channels so that brands can drive targeted trials so get people to try their products and we know that especially in food and beverage and even in other natural categories that trial is critical for many uh, in driving trust and sales conversions yeah and then they're able to then start to focus on how they can keep growing new consumers and learning uh, what people think and which attributes are most important in their product or where they can improve so that we can start to then lean into those areas of opportunity and continue to enhance them. So there's a lot of, of reasons why people work with us. Uh, a couple of them would be, and number one really, um, is supporting in-store velocity, like mm -hmm. for new listings and new product launches. So if I've just gotten listed on Walmart, I only have so much time to actually stay, like to prove um, that I'm worth keeping on that shelf. And I better be able to find a way quickly, especially as an emerging brand to drive those, those units move. Yep. So we help brands a lot of the time that are bridging from natural into conventional channels um, to be able to support those launches and to be able to build enough of a base to drive the repeat sales. And then the other reason people would work with us is um, just like an always on acquisition strategy. So like, just like people spend money every month on Facebook ads to drive acquisition, mm. uh, brands that are looking to target that better for you shopper will spend money with us every month to do the same thing. And what makes us stand out actually uh, is that we have so much um, information on what each consumer is interested in mm. is that we can really hyper target on a variety of criteria that other platforms cannot. So we can even get down to like, you know, have you heard of the brand before? Have you used it before? We can target by competitive usage, mm -hmm. by usage occasion. So this hyper targeting uh, is a really critical component into maximizing any type of marketing investment. And so that's kind of where people that want to launch their products uh, with efficiency and get consumer feedback come to social nature. Right. So it's more as a platform that's sort of better suited to like a medium sized brand that's growing, or would you say that even, you know, startup and smaller businesses can leverage it as well? We have programs that are really designed across growth stages for each company. Right. And we, we really don't have like a turnkey one size fits all approach to business. What okay. we like to do is work with each specific company to understand where they are um, in their growth trajectory. And so that way we're able to put together specific programs. And so what I mean by that is let's say um, I've just launched at, you know, Whole Foods, for example, and I really want to focus on that. And I'm a small company, like we can totally just focus on Whole Foods. Whereas right. another company 
that might have just raised, you know, $30 million from a VC fund and is now running super hard and has just gone into 10,000 stores and needs to prove themselves, we can handle that. So it really depends on, you know, what the brand's objectives are, and then we can just scale up depending on what those, those business goals are. Hmm. Okay, no worries. So, I mean, when you're working with these people, where does the conversation start? Does it start with like, what kind of reach are you trying to achieve? Or is it more like you're trying to hit a certain sample size so that the data you can draw is, you know, valid? Or where does the conversation start? Really, it starts with like, what are the marketing goals for the brand? Like, what are you trying to achieve, right? And usually, especially for emerging and what I would call like high growth companies, so companies that are not established brands in the market that haven't been, you know, market leaders for for several years, they're usually looking for a couple of things. Like, yes, I want to build brand awareness. That's one thing. Another thing is typically I need to drive targeted trial and drive velocity at retail. That's another massive goal. And the third piece tends to be, I also need like consumer feedback because I maybe haven't done or had the money to spend on doing a ton of expensive market research before Mm. I went to market. And I actually need to validate this uh, to be able to like expand and ride rollout across the spanner, or I need to validate this to actually support product market fit to raise money. And actually a lot of brands that we work with that are smaller use our consumer data in their pitch decks to raise money, which is so exciting. Um, So it really just kind of depends on the goals that usually we'll start by understanding the goals. So we're highly consultative. And honestly, every person on our team has like minimum 10 years of CPG marketing experience. So Mm. we don't hire people that haven't actually worked for the brand side or worked with like a digital agency focused in the space. So we take a consultative approach and then we want to understand, like, especially on the velocity side, like, you know, how many units are you selling per week? What is your target growth? What is that incremental lift that you're looking at, right? And reconcile those business goals against a campaign size that we can actually design to achieve an impact. And from there, that's where we start usually. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, one thing that I've found when having a great chat with a lot of the entrepreneurs and business owners that I've had on is that, you know, when they've been willing to pack heavy in the space that we're talking about, so, you know, trying to gather as much insight as to what their audience is into and who they are and, you know, getting all of those concrete consumer insights you know, which really is a mix of both market research and shopper behavior and customer feedback and so on, which is everything that you seem to collect. Yeah. I guess they are, they're at such an advantage because, you know, you know, you could read like Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, and he talks about like, you know, the early adopters and the connectors and the mavens and the salespeople and all of that. Who do you find like are on your platform and how do they sort of impact the way that a brand can launch because, you know, early adopters are obviously the ones that, you know, are looking specifically for the product or for the solution to solve their problems or, you know, fill a need. And then you've got the connectors who are the ones that, you know, uh, and the mavens are the ones that, you know, are obviously out there telling everybody about the product that they love so much. Who is, who is the majority of the people that are working, that are, that utilize your platform? in terms of the consumers and how do they sort of best speak about the brands that they've found? Great question. So our community tends to be mostly millennial moms, just to summarize it, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, succinctly. And they're coming to us for a variety of reasons. So 
they're coming to us specifically because they want to make their, their basket more natural. They want a better free solution for themselves and their family. Yep. And so that's the primary driver of where they're there. And they're, they're very diverse across, across that journey. We have people that come to the clap, the platform who maybe only have 5% of their basket with natural organic. We have others that might be, you know, closer to 30%. And we actually just recently did a survey uh, across the entire community and across uh, over 30 retailers where they shop. So we actually have a sense of which retailers have more natural basket size based on our community self-report. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen in Canada is that the Whole Foods shopper, about 33% of their grocery basket is all natural organic. At Walmart, it's roughly 19%. And law of laws in Canada and the banners is around 24. And so the reason I, I bring up that data to kind of answer your question is that there's a bit of a, a spread across, even depending on where they shop. Yeah. So it really ha- has to do with um, people wanting specific problems to solve like health problems. Mm-hmm. And then where are they at in their personal health journey? And then in terms of how they speak about the products, uh, we are very firm believers in Uh, try it, buy it. We see that in our repeat customers and how they get sales lift. And people are advocates when they have something that supports them, they are very likely to share it. So usually about 68% of social nature's community is is recommending a product to their friends and family on roughly Mm -hmm. like a weekly basis. And so as we keep elevating our work from a platform perspective, we're always looking for ways to like keep making it easy for people to share these cool new finds with their community members. Yeah. So we're not like, you know, influencer marketing in the sense that you're paying these people to do beautiful posts. Mm. If that's what you're looking for, like we're not the right platform. If you're looking for like real consumers, real everyday people, just like the people on this call, you and I, I hope, right? I think we're somewhat Okay, (laughs) I'm just being silly. Um, (laughs) But if you're looking, you know, to convert people, shoppers, uh, people that are relatively new to natural, then you'd want to come to social nature and connect with us. Mm. Okay. Is there a a correlation across sort of all of the channels that you work, a, a couple of trends that you can sort of point out to us today? Yeah, I mean, the plant-based trend is a big one, right? Yeah. Like what we we saw in our, our work and our recent uh, data is that like 72% of the millennial mom population, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm pulling from a, a sample size of roughly 600,000, so this is not a small sample, Significant, are, yeah. <laughs> are actively, and I, I repeat, actively uh, substituting uh, plant-based products for animal products. Like this trend is happening regardless of how you describe your dietary preference. So people that say that they eat meat are still making these these uh, substitutes. So I think that, you know, the innovation in the plant-based meal space is going to keep growing. If you go ahead and track the number of IPOs over the last year in this category, you're going to mm-hmm. see an increase in funds moving into the space. Um, I think there's going to be even more in a, innovation in like the ready prepared plant-based side, even frozen meals, yeah. uh, plant-based egg substitutes is another area and even plant-based um, dairy, because dairy is, is an area that it's not just about the animal substitute and some of the environmental drivers, but a lot of people are having issues, right. With lactose intolerance. So yeah. those are some pretty big trends. And the other one 
uh, that's happening across the board that I'm sure many of us have seen has been the growth in functional ingredients and specifically around kind of adaptogenic mushroom products and a variety of delivery formats. So we saw a year and a half ago that the entire world and, and a lot of the people that, that in our community made a big shift towards prevention, towards being more proactive with health. We believe that proactive health will continue to be a trend. And so people are looking for ways to keep enhancing their immunity, their energy, their resilience, and they wanna do it through food products, which means that functional food products with innovative ingredients uh, across beverages, even desserts, which is mm -hmm. interesting, mm -hmm. uh, are going to be continuing to grow. And we, we've seen that as well. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. And it's definitely a part of the conversation that we're having in, at here at Food Pack. We're yeah. working with quite a few clients, whether it's Aversio Wellness or um, Brain Food as well. In, oh, yeah. And they're working in the uh, the mushroom space. And yeah, yeah, whether it's a food product and, you know, as you suggested before, more like a... Um, a, a supplement or whether we're talking about uh, mental health, it's yeah. a really exciting space right now. And, and I'm just absolutely loving watching it emerge right now and, you know, keeping track of everything on LinkedIn as well, because it's something mm. that I'm extremely passionate about. I love that you said that because it really is like a holistic health model now, mm -hmm. right? The old days of like just eating better and exercising and that's it are kind of over like most that's still very important to consumers but mm. they are defining their health more in terms of like their mental health as you said emotional yeah. health the physical and as well as environmental health like people continue to be more sensitive to like how are brands operating within these the space yeah. so another trend that you may have seen to you um is that people are are interested in supporting local, like more so than ever before. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, you and I were kind of talking about how just we had a greater appreciation for our own backyard, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of translated into like this hyper-local focus where people want to support that local brand. And so local brands have an opportunity uh, to grow if they can partner in local retailers and really start to like shout those stories out loud. That's another big opportunity, I think big in the sense of consumer demand, maybe not huge market volume, yeah. but, but definitely an opportunity. Yeah, no, for sure. On Sunday, um, I went down to the Ladner market, the farmer's market mm. with my wife and kids. And we went quite frequently over the last couple of years in the summer when it was on, obviously it wasn't on last summer because of COVID, but it was the first market of the season in Ladner. And it was so uh -huh. good to get out and about and just see everybody out again. And the sun was shining and all of the vendors were really happy to be there. And the amount of lo local produce there was incredible. You know, we got our tray of local berries and it was awesome. So yeah, definitely. Um, I'm definitely on board with the local food scene as well. It's, um, it's so mm -hmm. valuable. And, you know, even we're talking about market research and, you know, getting customer validation and feedback. And, you know, it's been said multiple times on this podcast by multiple people as well, that <laughs> farmers markets are such a great place to go and, you know, get that instant feedback and conversation with your consumer. Like how often does that happen? You know? I love that you said that. And that that's so important. That instant feedback is, mm -hmm. is critical. Mm -hmm. Um, with social nature, what kind of window are we looking at to be working with a, a partner like you? Is it an ongoing thing or do people tend mm. to sort of drop in and drop out? Or the other sort of question I have as well is like, you know, over a certain amount of time, say I've got a marketing campaign and I'm launching a new product out there and I want to get the word out there about my brand. And I also want to get my feedback. So social nature is yeah. the perfect platform for me how many units am I expected to sort of get out into the world and do I drop ship it to a warehouse to you or am I sending it directly to the consumers? 
Hmm, okay. So the pathway towards getting like the product out is, yep. is can be a couple of ways, right? So it really depends on like the brand's like sales channel goals, yep. where they're at, and also the product type so we can we can do direct to home sampling no problem mm -hmm. and that tends to work really well like with supplement companies that have like single serve packs or like yeah. trial size like health and beauty products or even like um teas and things like that mm -hmm. and then also uh for brands that are looking to specifically drive like that in-store discovery like i'm on the shelf how do i get off the shelf i need people to know where i am yeah. we will actually drive them into the store with a free product voucher. So that way oh, yeah. they've had a shopping experience. Mm -hmm. I just got a unit turned if I'm the brand and the consumer then gets to, to try that product. So um, usually like you asked me how many units, um, 1500 units, it's like, you know, a campaign size of about 1500 people, assuming yep. I'm in 300 stores or so, yep. would be like a good kind of benchmark to kind of have enough people going into the store that we've got a nice bunch of data to work with. Yeah. We also might see a little bit of a, an impact at the store level with that ratio. Um, and we're still being mindful to not overly push at that store, right? Like you mm. wouldn't want to try and send 50,000 people into 300 stores uh, because you blow out the inventory. You know, that's not what we're trying to do here. Yeah. yeah. So it's all about that balancing act. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I know no, there's yeah, absolutely did. parts to that. So <laughs> were. Sorry, I've, okay. got a I've got a bad habit <laughs> no, for asking too many okay. questions at once. <laughs> no, I'm the same way. Uh, so I'm, it's all, yeah, it's wonderful. I, I love your line of inquiry, uh, Hayden. It's no great. Worries. <laughs> um, now tell us a little bit about the form that the data and the analytics comes back to the business. So is it online oh, yeah. or is it, you know, talk to us a little bit about that. Lovely question. Yeah. So uh, right now uh, we are actually building out like a really robust like online um, dashboard for clients to pull their own data and the type of data that clients can get is reviews, of course. So we specialize in collecting uh, authentic product reviews and we're partnered in the United States uh, with Bazaar Voice, which is the largest review syndication partner. Uh, as well as with Yacht-O uh, power reviews. And so the product review component is really important because not only do you get to see like the voice of the co consumer and the language in which they describe their experience with the product, the reviews can then be used to drive e-commerce sales. So that's really important. Um, and then people are also getting to see like what are the most important attributes like for their products that mm -hmm. people are looking looking to when they're making like a purchase decision or when they were just interested. Mm. And that data is really useful because it can support you with your hierarchy of messaging. So especially yeah. if I'm a new brand and I've got a new product and, you know, I want to shout like the 20 good things about it, but that is not possible in the digital world at all. We need to mm. figure out, you know, what's the big idea and what are the one or two things that we want to say that are going to be compelling and move the needle. So we'll help people to prioritize that messaging as well as understand, you know, the why or why not behind a buy. So like, um, I think that, you know, POS data is absolutely important in terms of uh, like point of sales data from retailers, right? And understanding market sizing, growth rates, uh, the competitive set and who's going up, who's going down, et cetera. Um, and, and it's useful 
However, it doesn't really give you like the qualitative read on like why this brand over that one, why this product over that one, why not my product or why my product. And so we're surfacing that why and that understanding the why or why not behind consumer interest and experience then helps me to figure out like how to scale up my products so mm -hmm. I can de-risk things. I can launch a smaller test with social nature and mm -hmm. figure out quickly, you know, what people think about me and make any adjustments to my messaging or whatever mm -hmm. uh, before I scale up. So, you know, those are some of the use cases um, around that and even how are they using the product? So a lot of companies, especially in certain types of ingredients and things like that, like, they're always looking for more ways to like expand how consumers are using the product. Why? Because that's going to increase the units moved. So we can start to understand like, are there any usage occasions that people don't care about that you thought they would, or the opposite, new ways that people might be using the product to support you to grow that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, understood. So when you're getting, you know, information back and people have, you know, ranked their needs, Mm -hmm. Can we be kind of specific with the way, with the questions that we're asking or? Totally. If, yeah. Okay, cool. Oh yeah. So 100%. we work with you to go, okay, this is the information that I'm trying to find out. So let's you got formulate it. Yeah. A, a host of questions that can give me these specific answers. Is that how it works? Got you. 100%. And okay. that's why brands work with us because we kind of get to learn and iterate as we go and yeah. keep, you know, digging deeper across that for sure. Yeah, this is perfect because I've had so many conversations with clients that are sort of in that startup or small sort of um, stage where mm -hmm. they're willing to invest in a custom printed project. And that's great. Ah, right. Mm -hmm. So right now they're, de <laughs> they're developing their brand and right. they're developing their message. And, you know, they're at a point right now where they're already out in the market, but, you know, their brand is relatively new. And, hmm. you know, getting into a custom printed pouch is a significant investment for somebody that's just getting into it for the first time. But there is a way to get in there with a minimum order quantity that's really achievable, like of two and a half thousand pieces or five thousand pieces, for example. Like you don't have to go out there and get 20,000 bags made. Mm. But it is more expensive. So if you're thinking about it, the unit cost at smaller scale is a lot more expensive than if you're buying larger quantities per unit cost, right? Sure. But, you know, the way that I always like to explain to people is like, look at a percentage of the extra cost that you're spending in this lower quantity of packaging as a marketing exercise. So what you can do is you can go out there with your brand as it is, you can go out there and you can test it and see what's working. And then yeah. when you've used up that version of packaging, you can reevaluate it and go back out to market again and get more data and keep on doing this process until you yeah. really refine down your messaging. So that could work so well in you know going hand in totally. hand with the program at social nature i love your your point there and there's a couple ways we could support with that like one would be in in pre-launch testing so yeah. before you even hit print like yeah. validate the concept and packaging design in advance can yeah. be great and then the other piece is like the the in-market test which you're referring to which is yeah. i've actually got the product in market which is yeah. super important and uh not just the design but actually the usability so we've had um, instances where, for example, the uh, cooking instructions were yeah. unclear. And yeah. so people were saying that the product didn't taste good or was hard to prepare because they had the wrong, wrong instructions. Yeah. So even like looking for little tweaks like that yeah. um, can be really important uh, yeah. before you spend, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars on paying listing fees at a larger retailer, right? Honestly, <laughs> and yeah. all of your stuff. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. Workplace wellness. 
Let's start to go down that avenue a bit because I can sure. tell that you're extremely passionate about it and I oh, see yeah. how it ties into it all. <laughs> so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like being present in life is critical, whether you're a parent or whether you're in a relationship or whether you just want to be a good colleague at work. You know, you being present of the way that you're interacting with the people around you and, you know, the, the language that you use in your mind and the way that you speak to yourself is just so critical. And so there are so many tools out there, whether it's, you know, meditation or a psychedelic experience, for example, that people are really starting to talk about and it's becoming more and more acceptable to have these discussions, which I love. So talk to us a little bit about your experience and the way that you're sort of discussing, you know, workplace wellness and mindfulness and self-regulation in the workplace. I'd love to hear all about it. Yeah, sure. So I think maybe I'll just start a little bit with like, like what is mindfulness? Because mm. it's a big word and it's kind of gone mainstream as well. Just it like has. the natural <laughs> space has. <laughs> and there's hundreds of apps and, and teachers and all kinds of things around there. And so I'm just going to maybe just give a little brief kind of introduction to like the most simplest way to explain it. Sure. And so when we're thinking about like mindfulness and you, you actually did a great framing already, uh, Hayden, when you spoke about the, the present moment awareness and connection, mindfulness is, is really an opportunity to kind of check in at any moment. And what research shows is that any moment in time, uh, the mind might be wandering. It might be thinking about the past. It might be thinking about the future. And it may not be actually focused on that present moment. And uh, so what mindfulness is, is it's an invitation to the here and now. And it's learning to connect with that here and now so that we can then begin to stay focused and to be able to direct like our energy and our attention to where we want it to go. Right. As well as to be able to understand where we are and accept it without judgment. That's a fundamental principle of mindfulness. And then start to develop the skill uh, to be able to, to kind of do what we would call like self-regulation. So people that practice mindfulness regularly, and there are mindfulness-based meditation practices that support mm. uh, cultivating mindfulness as a skill, um, often report, you know, an increased sense of presence um, they report an increased sense of gratitude and connection. Um, and there's a lot of data that, that shows that um, this can also support reducing stress, uh, improving focus and attention, improving the trait of resilience, improving uh, immunity even. And so that's kind of the focus that I've taken, which is when we, we do work. And I, I just completed a pilot with our some of our social nature team, mm. which has been an honor, <laughs> an absolute honor to get to do this work uh, where I work with social nature and our mm -hmm. team. Um, is really there's kind of three main, main areas of, of self-regulation. So the first one is around attention regulation. So there are specific mindfulness-based practices that we can do and in a matter of minutes, actually, to start to understand what mind wandering is and how we can redirect that attention back to a focal point of attention. And this starts to this this ability and skill then translates in the workplace to being able to focus more on the task at hand, to be able to actually develop the skill to do task switching uh, in a way that's not overwhelming and actually productive. It's a way to learn how to stay present during meetings and conversations and not tune out, but actually fully present, which is really key uh, when we're looking for, for collaboration and validating the people that are involved in that mm -hmm. conversation 
and learning. So that's a key one. And then the other area, which is really um, quite fun is around actually body awareness. And so a lot of people, especially in the workplace, depends on what kind of work we're doing. If we're working at a desk, uh, a knowledge worker, uh, a lot of the people that I've worked with, like they're not even aware of their body when they're at work. Like their they're posture. literally, yeah. they're, they're not aware of their posture. Um, they're not aware of even what's going on within their nervous system. And so we can start to help people understand uh, when am I in fight or flight? You know, when am I in that place of maybe stress or reactivity? How does that show up in terms of body sensations? Um, and what is what are some practices that I can do to restore balance into like an optimal performance zone? And so these practices support us to get into what's called the window of tolerance, where our social engagement system is activated. It's the ventral vagal complex, I believe. And so that's where um, our rational brain is being activated and we're able to process emotions. So by learning how to stay within that optimal zone uh, and understanding that that's not gonna be there all the time, but just understanding the fluctuations, I start to then cultivate the skill um, to perform better. Like it actually supports better performance because you're in a better place for that performance to happen. Hmm. And then the final piece is what we would call like emotional regulation, which happens through these practices and some of the principles of mindfulness around like acceptance and being able to withstand difficulties um, and being able to cultivate like flexibility and thinking. Um, and this is key. So when we're talking about running companies and leadership development, and, that, and I, when I say leadership, I mean every single employee has the opportunity to be a leader and is a leader, uh, we need to be able to deal with change. Like there's no perfect marketing environment. There is no perfect product launch. There is no perfect meeting and things always go unplanned. And so if we want to be able to thrive and it, it, it's such a common theme, like really actually need to be able to handle change and do it in a way where we're thriving with that. We are dealing with, with, the, with the storms that come at us and we're cultivating that resilience so that we actually have the stamina uh, <laughs> and skill to make the best decisions that we can mm. and to be able to let go of what's not serving the business and embrace new things and do so quickly, actually. Yeah, got, yeah. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, <laughs> like a, a chef, for example, like working in the hospitality industry, there are so many different stresses, whether it's, you know, the emotional mm. stress of actually working a shift, you know, like an extremely busy lunch or, a, you know, a, uh, a dinner trade, for example, sure. or you're, um, or you've got the stress of, you know, the financials, you know, of the business and, you know, trying to deal with COVID and the physical stress, like it's just extremely physical and tiring. Like there are just so many different stresses that you're coming from different angles. And unless you can keep in check, you know, all of the different stresses, it's going to absolutely run you dry and, um, your health is just going to go down really significantly. Totally. My parents had a, um, a, a business when I was growing up and it was a fast food business. And honestly, like every day we were fighting fires of some form, whether it was, you know, a fridge going down or a staff member not turning up or somebody sick and you've got to try and replace them. You learn to deal with stresses. Like you become extremely accustomed to it, but at the same time, you do notice unless you're aware of it. Like mm. when you stop and you check your body, like you do hold the stress <laughs> in your shoulders or in your jaw, you know what I mean? So totally. I guess that's, that's the thing. And the other piece as well is like, 
unless you can keep a cool head and you're a leader, like your leadership equity is just going to go out the window unless you can keep calm, you know, you've just, yeah. And that's the one thing I've noticed, like all of the great leaders that I've been um, really fortunate to have worked with over the years, you know, um, in so many different workplaces, all of them have been so chill and I've never heard them raise their voice, you know, and, um, and that's something that I've always aspired to as well. Totally. And, and even parenting, like, you know, keeping calm around your kids is really hard at times. <laughs> For sure. And I think like part of oh it's gosh. accepting that, you know, yeah. like we're not perfect, right? No. Like people are going to have days when you're more reactive than others. Yeah. Like we're not robots and that's okay. There's yeah. acceptance around that. Yeah. However, I think to your point, like even being present, like yeah. some of the, the people in our class, like a cohort where I just graduated yeah. from, like their own parenting skills have improved because they're yeah. actually learning to be present with their kid, yeah. even when they're tired. Like, instead of just like, here, honey, you know, here's your iPad. Okay, bye. You know, they're <laughs> like finding ways to deal with it or like accepting, you know, accepting the temper, the temper tantrum, like oh, accepting it. It's hilarious. Like, <laughs> like you've got to laugh, like in the eye of the shit storm, in the yeah. eye of the shit storm that's parenting at times, like my wife and I will be, give, we'll be feeding the kids at dinner time food's flying kids are screaming the dog is barking like it's just insanity for like 20 minutes and if you can get through that 20 minute window often ash and i'll just look at each other and just burst into laughter because it's like what are you gonna do like except laugh totally. you know the totally. mess will get cleaned up the um it'll eventually come to a, a halt the kids will be asleep in a couple of hours it's gonna be okay <laughs> we're just gonna get through this shit storm and honestly yeah. it makes me laugh because it's through those moments where you can actually let it get you carry it can carry you away really quickly and i'm not saying that i'm perfect and i'm not saying that it happens sure. every night but there yeah. are times when it's like what the heck is going on and you've got to check in with yourself and go okay listen like yeah. this is just a short window so like i recognize it in myself at home i recognize it in myself at work as well yeah. Um, one thing that I need to do more of, and I've done a lot of in the past, but it's sort of slipped by the wayside is, mm-hmm. uh, is meditation. And I use the, um, the headspace app and I, I loved it and I subscribe mm-hmm. to it still, but I, I need to get back on that wagon again. Do you do any meditation or what sort of practices do you oh, find yeah. yourself doing? Yeah. <laughs> Every single day I I've been practicing, I guess, informal mindfulness for over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, informal yeah. mindfulness would be like that self-awareness and just being aware of oneself in any given moment. Yeah. And that came as I grew up as a national level athlete. So I kind of oh, had wow. to develop mindfulness as a gymnast. So I wouldn't kill myself doing yeah. double box fix, double box lifts in the air and all that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so now I, I start every morning, uh, typically with like a seated meditation practice, yeah. I'll do mm-hmm. anywhere from like 15 to, to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the day, I practice mindful minutes. So one hack for anybody that wants to just get started is what you can do is you can put your phone timer on for a minute and then just settle into the body and just count the number of breaths that you do just breathing naturally not trying to force anything and just count those breaths and see maybe it's seven maybe it's 10 maybe it's 12 the number doesn't matter then you're going to know what your number is so at any given moment throughout the day if you just want to practice that reset you just stop settle in do the number of breaths and then you can continue. So you don't have to go and look at your app or set a timer or look at your phone. Um, and I've been coaching our team to do this practice, right? And um, all of them have been saying how, wow, like just that one minute, like before a big meeting or like before I start my next my next task, like has really been helpful to just like 
hit the reset and to feel like a greater sense of, of calm mm. and centeredness. And then you're more present. So the mindful minute is something that I've been practicing, especially, you know, all the zoom meetings, like sometimes I've had eight or 10 zoom calls back to back in a day. Mm. And so how do you stay present with all that? Right. Mm. So doing that is great. And then I think, um, recovery is important. So if you think of ourselves as like athletes, right, there's the prepare, <laughs> sustain and recover piece of training. So as business people, if you think of yourself the same way, what am I doing to prepare for my day? What am I doing to sustain myself throughout the day with my, my nourishment, what with staying hydrated and then recovery. So what can I do for sleep preparation? So I, I will turn off all devices, usually 30 minutes, if not an hour before it's time to prepare for sleep. I might do some gentle mind, mindful movement, a little bit of yoga, whatever. Um, and then do even just a short 10 or 15 minute meditation before bed. And I find that overall, um, I'm just so much more uh, calm and relaxed and have more energy despite challenges, right? I just overcame a concussion, but mm. I've been fine <laughs> because I continue to practice mindfulness throughout this process. Yeah. So those are some things that I do. Um, you know, you mentioned a couple of things. So, you know, obviously mindfulness is all about being in the present moment because you, if you, you know, if you're stuck in the past or you're thinking about the future, you're not yeah. present and you're just not even aware of what's right in front of you right now, which is literally sure. all we have. Like totally what is happening right now is the realest thing that we've got. And yeah. so, you know, PTSD is really being stuck in the past and those grooves that are really ingrained in your brain and those thought patterns that are just sort of influencing your present moments and the physical impact that it has is just incredible. And um, so that's sort of being stuck in the past. You've obviously got the present moment. How much time do you spend focusing on the future and what impact does it have mm. or what sort of what have you sort of learned about focusing on the future and sort of that sure. whole dream casting piece and the impact that that can have on your life? Sure. I'm going to answer this in two parts because I do want to acknowledge that uh, people that are dealing with post-traumatic stress yeah. are actually dealing with, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert, but as I understand it, um, a dysregulated nervous system. Yeah. So it's not their fault. Uh, this is not a conscious choice to be stuck in the past. What it yeah. is, is that their system is not regulating in a way that is promoting that window of tolerance that we talked about. So mm. they may be jumping up into moments of hyper arousal and fight or flight, which is mm. where they're really reactive. They might be having a, a flashback from a traumatic event or something might trigger them. And then they may be crashing down into what's called the hypo arousal stage where there's flat emotional effect. There's no energy. They can't get up off the couch. They have no motivation and they don't know that they're dealing with this. And a lot of people suffer alone. So I just want to acknowledge to the listeners here mm. that mm. if there are, if you are dealing with that, or you know somebody that feels like they're, you know, up and down all the time and, and they don't know why, that it could be really helpful to connect that person with a trauma trained professional that can support that person to understand what's happening within their, their nervous system so that they can learn to regulate and they can learn uh, to widen uh, what we call the window of tolerance. So they'll start to have a little bit more of a balanced, balanced life. And uh, it's really important that there's guidance around because there is no one size fits all model uh, for people dealing with post-traumatic stress. Yeah, of course. And it actually impacts me a large percentage of the population. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that because it's an important piece. So a lot of us just 
weren't aware of as much. Yeah. Um, and then your, your comment about the future. I love Hayden that you asked that question. Absolutely love it. Uh, because mindfulness, although the practices, right, are training that present moment awareness and the practice of mindfulness involves like one task focus at a time, there is a place for contemplation in, in mindfulness. And so consciously reflecting on something and consciously envisioning the future can be a practice in itself. And the key distinction there is that I'm being conscious right now. Like I'm sitting down and I'm consciously thinking about how do I envision the future for my company or for my life? Mm -hmm. And so it's really about that autonomy and that skill to decide like how and when we focus. And there absolutely is a place for future planning and envisioning because we know that often beginning with the end in mind or having a sense of direction can free up our energy and our resources to start to then make decisions moment to moment that fulfill that why or that purpose, right? Mm. We talk a lot about vision and purpose in companies and how that is what drives the behavior. So it is important to be able to connect vision uh, with today. Mm. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, we're also aware of the realness of a placebo. I mean, they take placebos, like the mm. placebo effect and the nocebo effect into account with all medical studies, right? Because sure. they know that the psychology of knowing that you're taking a pill, mm. not knowing that it's a sugar pill, actually has a tangible impact. And so, you know, bringing the past into the present has an impact because we know that it's, you know, it can impact you in physical ways. You know, you think about a traumatic experience and sure. we know that it impacts you and your blood pressure and, you know, your heart and it can just impact you in so many ways. And then you think about the placebo and it's like, okay, well, if I'm thinking about the future and I'm thinking about it in a positive manner mm. and that's bringing peace of mind to me right now, that's also having a positive effect on my health. So it's really interesting to see how it all works. And one, the other day I actually heard a really good um, sort of description of the effects that psychedelics by Michael, Michael Pollan, who I, I'm, I'm okay. not sure, are you aware of Michael Pollan? He's a, he's I an, yeah. Yeah, I've heard, I, I'm not sure of him specifically, but definitely the whole psychedelic thing is definitely yeah, growing it and is. is performing equally against um, regular meditation practitioners. So those that have meditated for more than 10,000 hours yep. will get the same result as taking these psychedelics. Yep. So it's neat to see that there's new pathways. 100%. Uh, please go ahead and explain. Sorry, I kind of jumped yeah. in there. No, no, not at all. Michael Pollan, <laughs> he did a, a great, a great, he sorry, let me start again. Michael yeah. Pollan um, did a really good job of explaining sort of how psychedelics work on the brain to sort of work through the effects of PTSD. So it's like, imagine your mind is a hill and it's covered in snow. And over the course of your life, you have thoughts and emotions and, you know, default routines. And think of those thoughts and emotions as a, uh, an idea going down the hill on a sled. And over time, those you go keep on going down that same path and you keep on having these reactions to situations and those sled tracks just get deeper and deeper. And that's sort of over the course of our life, the way that we react to situations and the way that we think about situations be, tend to become quite ingrained. Mm. Now, when you take a psychedelic, particularly um, either MDA, MDMA or um, psilocybin, which is all being trialed right now, um, and it's, it's 
showing so many positive effects as you just suggested. Think of it like resetting that process of default routine. So it's a fresh layer of snow on that ski hill. And all of those really worn in um, routines, those default routines, get a fresh coat of uh, fresh layer of powder snow on it. And you've got an opportunity to look at things in life differently and reestablish the way that you see things and think about things. And so that's sort of how the how it can sort of help people so quickly and rapidly with um, traumatic events like you know PTSD and so on, because they're getting an opportunity to wipe the slate clean and sort of reestablish the way that they have the relationship with their past so that they continue on into their future with a, a refreshed and uh, revised sort of view on things. I think it was a really cool explanation and I sort of butchered it a little bit. Yeah, in the show, no. Yeah, in the show notes, I'll actually, um, I'll provide the the episode that I heard it on and, uh, and the time yeah. that it was in. It was just awesome and it sort of really summarized things for me because I've had some amazing experiences on um, psilocybin and, you know, for me, I've had people ask me the question, well, you said it was so life-changing, but you don't seem any different. How has it changed you? And I'm like, Mm. well, unless you've done a psychedelic and psychedelics are not for everybody. And I, I, you know, disclaimer out there. And, you know, I really do believe that set and setting is important and obviously the dose as well, but unless you've done a psychedelic, it's really hard to explain, but I sort of felt that that was a really good explanation of the way that it can interact with your mind to give you a renewed perspective and, um, and sort of really change the way that you see the world and and the way that you, the, the way that you move forward through the world after you've had that experience. It's really cool. Yeah, I think the one word, what you're describing there is called neuroplasticity. Yeah, it is. And so basically yeah. that means that the brain and the pathways and the way we process information mm-hmm. uh, can be rewired. Yeah. And that can be happening through mindfulness-based practices and some of what you're talking about here mm-hmm. uh, with the psychedelics. So yeah, it's yeah. Uh, nothing is permanent. Everything, there is always change. There's always an opportunity for evolution. Yeah. Hundred percent. Like we hear, I'm probably. <laughs> I'm also like a. I'm guilty of this, but you know, you'll see somebody uh, and you'd be like, they're stuck in their ways. They're never going to change. Yeah, yeah. They they may, may well just change if they have a really good trip. <laughs> Trust me. I'm like I'm an advocate. I, I would, That's cute. You know, especially especially for people that are you know they're getting up sure. in their years and they're sort of you know. They may yeah. find that they're a little stuck in their ways and they want a refreshed and renewed perspective on life, especially people that are coming to the end of their life, like the elderly as well. Like I think mm-hmm. that there would be nothing but benefits to having a, a really interesting experience like that just to sort of, yeah, I don't know, refocus and sort of see things differently. I think it's, I th- I'm really excited that it's changing yeah. our culture again and it's a part of the conversation now. Well, it's part of indigenous wisdom yeah. around the world. Like yep. many indigenous cultures have been doing these practices for, for thousands of years and that yep. wisdom of that connection to, to plants and remedies and how they interact with our experience. So it's yep. like that wisdom uh, is now becoming more commercialized and people are getting more exposed to it. And yep. it's, yep. it's, it's good to, it, I, my hope would be that, you know, as, as a global society that we have that honor and respect for wisdom yep. and that we continue to consciously learn from these communities and uh, have a, a level of, um, you know, relationship in a good way. Yeah, exactly. Like you're exactly right. I'm really excited <laughs> for the next sort of five to 10 year period as well. 
Um, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah. Before we do go, though, I did want to just um, touch on Analia, the CEO and founder of uh, Social Nature. I was fortunate enough to have met Analia at a trade show a few years ago, and we had a really, really good chat. And then um, just due to work and life, like she sort of fell off my radar. Mm. And then I was really excited when you circled back around because I remembered the story of Social Nature and I just remembered how passionate she was about her business. We've been talking about leadership and, you know, positive leadership qualities. I can only imagine, and I had a five-minute interaction with Analia, but I could just see how passionate she was about the business. Talk to me about the the leadership qualities that you see in Analia and, and how it sort of builds into the success that she's seen in, you know, social nature. Well, I think that I, I would invite you to have her on your show to get her to talk about that directly. Uh, love to with your audience and we can make that happen. Um, and what I love about working with social nature and Analia is that um, she's one of the most humble yeah. people I have ever met. Like she's very clear in her vision mm-hmm. and she's very purpose driven. She's very inclusive in all decision-making mm-hmm. and she's very open to new ideas. And so yeah. every person that works at social nature has an opportunity to make an impact in mm-hmm. the direction of the business and how they structure their jobs and to share their voice. And I, and I say that 100% genuinely mm-hmm. um, because I'm at a stage in my career where I don't need a job, right? I, I don't have to have a full-time job. I can do my own thing. And mm-hmm. I stay here because it's fun. I believe mm-hmm. in the mission and it's a playground. Like you get to try and test new things and, 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 and that's all because of how Analia is. And so I think, uh, I think let's get her on your show I'd and love to hear have a from good her directly. Yeah, yeah. It's super fun. Yeah. yeah. And, and, particularly just due to the fact that I think she's probably like a digital marketing genius. I mean, you think about the, the, um, you know, the online presence that she's built and also, you know, the community that she's built as well. I think that I'd I'd love to have a really deep chat with her about that and sort of get some insights and sort of the way that she went about building her business as well. So yes, let's table that and take that conversation (laughs) offline. So thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. But look, you've given us so much information on some consumer trends in the CBG space, especially in the natural um, food world and, you know, shopper marketing and the way that social nature interacts with um, both the consumers and also the businesses that are partaking in the program. Mm -hmm. And then also wellness, um, mindfulness and um, mental health as well is such a critical conversation. I'm so glad we could have that today as well. So thank you very much. Thanks, Hayden. And I wanted to let everyone know that uh, Social Nature will be doing a webinar on August 24th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on ways to win at buyer meetings. And so Mm. um, if anybody's interested, they can email me about it. Our our landing page and event info will be up uh, shortly. And we will be partnering um, with a very large uh, broker and shopper marketing company that has deep expertise in the space. So We'd love people to show up. We'll be giving specific concrete examples of ways to win and it would be fun for people to participate. Awesome. Including you, you including you. (laughs) I'd I'd love to, I'd love to be a part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm here to learn, right? I'm here to learn as much as I can in, you know, as many different facets of the industry as possible. So I'd love to partake in that. That'd be awesome. Thank you. And thank you for all of your wonderful work, Hayden, and connecting people and bringing people's like wisdom and shared experience out and everything like your way of asking these questions and the research you do like you're just I just want to say thank you for for all your hard work and contribution. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, Jessica, what's the best way for everybody to get in touch with you personally? 
so they can uh, email me at jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A, at socialnature.com, or they can follow me on LinkedIn and reach out that way under my name, which Perfect. I think you'll publish. On I will. Thing. I'll put everything Jessica in the show Malik. notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People sometimes can't remember how to spell my name, so you, they'll be able to read it. Thank you very much, Jessica. I appreciate your okay. time. Take care. Thank you, Hayden. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions from today's episode or would like to know more about what I can do to help you achieve your packaging vision, you can reach me directly at Hayden at thepackheavypodcast.com. You could DM me on Instagram at thepackheavypodcast, or we could also connect on LinkedIn and start a conversation there. We'll see you next week.